a huge opportunity that leaders have is to be willing to sit in discomfort for the sake of letting somebody else be comfortable. And that's where I still see an opportunity because if I come to work and I'm upset about something that either you don't believe or you don't think is real because you've never experienced it, rather than shut me down, can you show up as curious and interested, right? And really make me feel like I belong by engaging me instead of shunning me and by looking me in the eye instead of looking away. That, to me, I think is the next challenge of leadership. You're listening to Culture Champions, a podcast about what it takes to cultivate exemplary work cultures and master sustainable business growth. In each episode, host Zain Hassan sits down with business leaders and experts to bring you in-depth conversations on maximizing value and success in all aspects of your company. I'm unbelievably excited about today's guest and today's conversation. So today we have Erica out, and I've had the fortune of being able to spend quite a bit of time with her. So I personally know her, but I'm excited for the audience to get to know her. So Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's truly my pleasure. So I just part of our customary process at the beginning is we always ask for the audience's sake, if you could give a overview on your background. So if you could start with that would be great. Awesome. All right. I would start with saying that I'm a New Yorker. And I think that's really important to say that I'm from New York because I live in Florida now and I want to really have a dividing line there. I am a New Yorker. I am trained as a lawyer. I am currently a CEO. So I've been the CEO of a company called The Life Coach School for the past three plus a few months, years. Prior to that, I was an employment law partner at a large national law firm for 22 years. And prior to that, I was a law student at Harvard Law School. Prior to that, I was a legal secretary. (laughs) And prior to that, I was a student at Florida State University. Well, I think you covered everything, so I don't have anything that I can add from a personal level, other than from the lens of family, and you reside in South Florida now? I do. I live in South Florida. I married an actual Floridian, so somebody who's from Florida, which at the time that I did it was actually a very difficult thing to do. But now we have been married for almost 21 years, and we have three fully Floridian children. So my kids are 19, 17, and 15. I have a sophomore at UF and two high school, a sophomore and a senior. Perfect. I appreciate it. And the reason I want to go into that is because I have every conversation I've had with you has been one where it's typically literally changed from my mentality from wherever or whatever I'm dealing with at that moment to having a 180 degree attitude from being, maybe I'm feeling having a victim mentality or something that is not justified, and then you help me pivot. And so I think the fact that you've been the CEO of a coaching organization is very appropriate, considering I feel like you're partly my coach. At least every time I talk to you, I feel like I get the same experience I would if I was connecting with my coach. Fair enough. We'll see how today goes. So when it comes to culture and the fact that you came, you took over as CEO and a coaching organization, what does culture mean to you? So I like to tell people because when I was leaving to take this job and I was leaving my firm, I think that it was particularly shocking to people. I had been a lawyer at that firm for, like I said, 22 years. So it seemed like I was going to do that forever. And when I decided to leave, part of the reason that this opportunity was so attractive to me was 
in that moment in time, it just seemed like it was the exact perfect thing for me. And I was the exact perfect thing for it in that, yes, I was a lawyer, but two years or three years earlier, I had actually become a certified coach through the life coach school. So I had gone through the certification process. I had become a coach. I had been coaching on the side lawyers. And the reason that I did that is because coaching was so just revolutionary and life-changing for me that I felt like it was something that other women lawyers in particular could really benefit from. I felt like a lot of women, and this could be, I'm sure this is women everywhere, but it was my experience that women in corporate big law firms were doing a lot of the same things, right? Having a lot of mom guilt, having a lot of imposter syndrome, not believing that they could succeed, thinking that they couldn't have family and work, like a bunch of just mindset issues that in my opinion, were definitely holding me back and continue to hold back other women lawyers. And so I wanted to become a coach to bring that to my firm. I felt like that was a culture shift that could make a huge difference in the retention of women and also in people of color. So when you bring that up in terms of, at least from imposter syndrome, and I'll just be very candid, I deal with that myself regularly. And then I just, it's a, a mental shift of making sure I'm like, wait, in fact, candidly, I opened up to you on this exact topic very recently and you helped me remember my own accomplishments and the fact that I shouldn't have any imposter syndrome whatsoever. So is it that relevant? I'm just trying to understand if like that's relevant to women or is that relevant to everyone? So I think it's relevant to everyone, but I will tell you the way that I think that it's different. And again, this is in the context that I know best, which is in corporate law firms, but also just in corporations generally. I think that everyone can doubt themselves and not have enough natural confidence. And that's something that can be worked on. But the reason that I think that this imposter syndrome, and I am a big proponent to like stop telling women they have imposter syndrome, because when you are in a situation that was not created by or for you, right? There are some very fundamental differences between men and women generally. If you are the one who is socialized as a woman and who is expected to do certain things with respect to family, including actually having the children, then the way that you look at life and work is going to be very different from someone who doesn't have to do those things. And so most of these organizations, corporations, workplaces were created by men. And the norms are things that really benefit men and work more for men. And so what I say to women is, listen, you are an imposter. It's not a syndrome. This is a workplace that was not created for you at all. And so the opportunity that was given to women like me when we got into law firms was come in here and be one of the guys. And if you couldn't do that because you also wanted to have a family and have children, then you would feel like an imposter because you couldn't put in the hours. You couldn't like you couldn't do the things that they expected you to do. Well, you're not an imposter. <laughs> so I think it's different for men and women because for men like you, I was like, but sir, all you have to do is remember X, Y, Z. If you're a woman, you may not have X, Y, Z to look back on and you're still not an imposter, right? You still shouldn't be thinking you can't do it or thinking that you shouldn't do it just because either you haven't done it already or nobody's done it before you. You can absolutely be the one to do it if it's what you choose. But I think it's different because I think that for men, there are more examples of success in that model. That's a very eye-opening response. I appreciate that. And now that you explain it the way you have, I don't disagree. 
And the reality is I think that founded four businesses. Now I'm self-reflecting. I think all four were probably built based on my own. It was built for people like me. Yes. And just to be clear, some women can absolutely thrive in those types of environments. But, you know, in my experience, if you graduate law school, typically you would do that around age 25. About your early 30s is when for women, it becomes really important to focus in on if you want to start a family. That is a time when you are typically thinking about those issues. It is also the time you are typically thinking about becoming a partner in a law firm. And those things can feel like a huge conflict if you are a woman, they can be very, very hard. And so the thing that I say to women is, yes, it feels very difficult for you, uniquely so. That is all very true. And I'm not saying that you should stop doing any of it. I'm saying that the solution is not for us to leave. It's for there to be more and more of us so that we can change and shape how this job looks. Because it turns out what we all learned in 2020 is that you don't actually have to be in an office for 15 hours a day. You don't actually have to work that hard. You don't have to do all this FaceTime. One of the things that women loved the most, they hated the homeschooling. You know what they loved? They loved not having to spend an hour or 90 minutes getting ready in the morning, doing their hair, putting on makeup, commuting, like wasting all of that time because they could be so much more productive, right? That's something else men don't understand. If you throw on a suit and don't comb your hair back, you are good to go. Fast. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But if you're a woman, it takes a lot longer. Like these are just these little things, but they're huge differences. That would be a huge difference. I don't disagree. And I think the concept of what you just described, not just the commute, but the fact that if there's more women in the workplace, it should be where the voice can become more apparent. Exactly. We can actually start to see workplaces transform and become more truly inclusive, right? It's not Absolutely. to become one of the way things were before. It's let's bring it to the way that it needs to be going forward. The advice that I got when I was a first or second year associate was you just need to fit in and be one of the guys. And in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, that's never going to happen. That's just never going to happen. <laughs> that's a fact. Right? Right. But I had associates coming up to me, especially once I had my children. I had three children at a law firm. That is unheard of. And coming up to me and saying, because you are here, I believe it's possible for me. But, you know, if I wasn't there, you have to see somebody doing this thing that you want to do. That encourages you to stay. And so having more women in the workplace, hopefully you'll have more empathy, more understanding, but you'll also have more inspiration. And more of that thing that you have, which is now you can see examples of people succeeding. So you can get rid of this idea that you're an imposter. You belong here too. Well said. So when it comes to the organization you stepped into and when cultural change to spark cultural change, I mean, there's so many challenges about trying to build a high performing team and trying to build an organization that people want, what I call people want to run to. Right. Meaning yes. like, uh, not run away from because usually the people who are running away from either a manager or something toxic, but building something people want to run towards to be a part of. So one of the reasons that I say that I think I was the perfect person for the job and the job was perfect for me is that. My background as an employment lawyer wasn't just litigating employment law cases. A huge part of it was advice and counsel to my very large corporate clients and doing a lot of workplace culture training and watching workplace culture training evolve 
over time, right? So when I first started doing that type of training, we were just going in there and trying to teach people like, these are the elements of a cause of action. This is what you do if you want to complain. This is how you avoid being sued, right? That was it. And then starting, I would say primarily around 2016, 17, around Me Too, right? So maybe 2017, the way that we started doing that training changed a lot. And it became more about creating cultures where people were comfortable enough to be able to complain because before there was such a fear of retaliation. And then even moving into 2020, when everybody was maybe working from home, but some people weren't, but then there were a lot of social justice things that were coming up, a lot of what people thought of as politics coming up in the workplace and how to deal with those conversations, how to deal with gender identity conversations. That's something that's evolved over time. And so really understanding workplace culture issues. I did courageous conversation training with a guy named Glenn Singleton, who is, that's his whole business and does an amazing job at getting people to be able to have those really difficult conversations and be able to stay in the room, stay at the table and talk things through. And so I think I had a very unique view of all of that stuff and also the role of coaching because I was also a coach. And so going into that organization, which was founder run, founder is very much a visionary, very fast moving, very like, you know, not as focused on creating the internal community. But I was Mm -hmm. very much a believer that what you create inside of your organization very much impacts what you're putting out into the world. And so if you are inviting people to your business to do business with you, what you have going on internally needs to match what people are seeing externally. And so that was really what we wanted to do. And then the other thing about the business is that it's completely virtual. And so you had very high achieving, very competent people, but they all worked all over the place. And so creating a situation where people could properly collaborate, be productive, get things done, and also have some sense of belonging to something was what we endeavored to do there and I think did very well. That's a lot, right? There's everything you just said, there's a lot of challenges associated with trying to build that type of a culture in a fully virtual organization. How did you, I'm just going to start there. How did you approach the virtual side and how did you work about building the culture knowing that it is all virtual? So I think that the people who are drawn to work in that kind of environment are really going to be very self-motivated, really requiring people to be accountable for results, not trying to constantly micromanage them. And because you also can't do anything if that's what you're doing. And really trusting the people that you work for and getting them to trust you. I worked hard on building individual relationships with every member of the team. When I first got there, there were, I think, a total of 12 people And at the most that we had, I think we're up to 32 and which is a lot, which is a big change over that many years, especially for a very small company. But we were doing a lot of growth and scaling in terms of the product offering. So that's the reason for that. And I think also getting members of the team to trust each other was super important. When I was working at my law firm, like literally, I think every law firm is like this. The motto is eat what you kill. So You bring in the work and then you do it. (laughs) And that's how you have work to do. That type of model, just in my opinion, is very hard 
to maintain. You just create a bunch of cliques and factions in a very very challenging to have succession. Extremely, yeah, extremely challenging to have succession, and that's something that a lot of firms deal with. For us at the company, we weren't necessarily dealing with anything like that, but there was definitely. You know, when you have very competitive people, they want to compete. And so getting everybody to be on the same team and work together towards common goals and accomplish together what they're used to accomplishing separately was a challenge for us, which I think we were able to also do. And part of that was we would get together quarterly and really spend time building those relationships. So how did you even know when you approached it and you came in, you felt like this job was the right job for you? And you're going from a partner in a law firm to the CEO of a, a rapidly growing, and all of the numbers you just said on employees doesn't sound as large. It was much larger just for the audience. The size and it was much more of a byproduct of the revenue was yes. much larger than what it sounds like when you talk. When yes. you talk- I mean, yeah, this little startup is a $50 million business. Right. So it's a significant business. And we were accomplishing it with such a small staff because every member of our team was like a rock star, right? That was part of it. But, you know, rock stars can be difficult to bring together. (laughs) And so that was definitely a challenge. But I think too, that even people who do like to work virtually and feel that they perform best in a remote environment still like occasional in-person contact. And so we were doing that regularly, which I think helped. And we were, I don't know, we were encouraging people. We worked with a coach named Trudy LeBron, who really was, she's an equity-centered coach, and she would get on calls with us every other month, and we would talk about things that were coming up in the company. And with the whole team? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. With the whole team, all the directors. And we would have like space to do all of that. Once a year, we did a retreat with her team. And we brought everybody, including non-directors. And we talked about things like the role of coaching in the world and how we wanted to really promote coaching as something that can change life outcomes. That's the equity piece of life coaching is that where you, what your options are in your life and how your life is going to go is largely determined right now by your zip code. And we believe that life coaching can actually change life outcomes and can get us out of that truth that how your life is going to go is determined by your zip code. And so we would train all of our staff on that, right? A lot of our staff were coaches who had been certified through the school. A lot of them weren't. We needed them to understand the reason that we think this is important is the role of coaching in the world is it's bigger than what you think it is. And so we would get the whole team together. And so we did do things that were meant to be like bonding Right. Uh, and really try to make Build authentic connections, real relationships. Yes. yes. And trust. So when it comes to what would you say was the biggest challenge that, you know, whether you overcame it or didn't, the biggest challenge in the process? It's there's a lot. You're growing rapidly. You're trying to build a culture that is very intentionally a culture where you want top talent to come to and an inclusive culture. And to do those three is not something that you usually find in, especially as a group that's scaling that fast. I think that our biggest challenge was being able to push the culture down. So it was one thing when our entire team was like a bunch of high-performing directors, which is what it was when I got there. And I was meeting with them one-on-one. I was giving them one-on-one feedback. I was hearing their concerns one-on-one. But as we started to grow and each one of those people had their own department, 
it became apparent that the experience of individual employees was dependent more on who their director was than anything else. And so really making sure that the culture that we wanted to exist was uniformly being pushed down by the directors was the biggest challenge. And so how do you do that? You try to put a lot of like frameworks and processes in place and really hold everyone accountable to following them. That was a big part of it. How you did the one-on-ones, the frequency. Communication frameworks, essentially? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, I feel in my experience, every challenge is usually because of some lack of or miscommunication. It's always communication. Yeah, yeah 100%. And also, we had our core values. And I would do most, if not all, of the interviewing and hiring. And one of the questions that I asked everybody coming in is, I want to talk to you about each one of our core values. And I want to know what it means to you, how you feel about it. Like, And I would make them talk to me about it off the cuff and see what they said. And I felt like from that, we could really get a good idea of, is this person going to be a great fit for us or not? If we're living into these values, are they looking? Because you know, I would say one of our core values was we are inclusive, right? Very short, easy sentence. But when I would ask people what that meant to them, people had a lot of different ideas of what inclusivity was. And so I would listen to that and I would get an idea from talking to them, are you going to be a good fit for us? Because we mean inclusive very broadly. We mean creating a sense of belonging, not just tolerance. And so I would be able to tell from their answers whether or not they were going to be able to join us in that. Tell me more about the belonging. You said belonging, not just tolerance. Can you go Well, yeah, because... So when I first started at my firm a million years ago, the thing that everybody was talking about was diversity, right? And so you would bring in members of underrepresented groups, which is what that meant, right? You would bring in members of underrepresented groups, but you wouldn't have actually created a space for them. And so they wouldn't stay. I remember that I worked for a Black woman partner and she brought in a piece of work And the work was in another office. And so she called a partner in that office and she said, I'm sending this piece of business to you. I would like you to use this black associate. And his response was, I'll never forget it. I was sitting there and I was listening on speakerphone. He said, oh, okay. I wouldn't have thought of him. And what that told me was exactly that. He wouldn't have thought of him. And so here's a guy who's in his office who actually was a great lawyer and left the firm and became like a great sports agent. But he was sitting down the hall and this partner would never have thought to work with him. And so I think that when we moved from diversity to inclusivity, then it became, okay, diversity is inviting me to the party and inclusivity is asking me to dance, right? Okay, well, let's assume that's true. That's fine. Because the other thing is I can invite you to my office, but if I never invite you to lunch and I don't get to know you, do you feel included? But when you're going to feel like you belong is when you are not just invited to lunch, but it's just assumed that you're going to be part of the team, that, you know, the things that are important to you are also important to me, that you can talk to me about things that are important to you so that you can put up pictures in your office of the things that are important to you the same way that everybody else does. If you're, let's say you're in a same-sex marriage. I knew somebody who was in a same-sex marriage and kept their wedding picture facing them on their desk, but wouldn't display any of that. Now, everybody in their office has, like you have, pictures of your family just right there for me to see. But (laughs) if you don't feel comfortable that you can be yourself, 
you won't do that. You don't feel like you belong. That so makes that's sense. to me the difference between inclusion and belonging. And tolerance is just like, oh, I'll let you be here. But if I belong here, then what I have to say is just as important as what you have to say. I, I love the depths because the, the depth that you're going through, it's between truly feeling like you're part of something and someone just making the like the, the idea, the claim that, oh, this is what we want to do. So we're just going to have some metrics around it. But how it feels is completely different based on what exactly what you just communicated. A hundred percent. And also it determines whether or not the person is going to want to stay there. You know, are they going to want to stay there? If they don't feel like they belong, probably not. And it's very expensive for you to keep training associates at law firms. It's a very expensive proposition. And so when I, going back to me saying that I thought bringing life coaching to the law firm would help with things like retention, it was exactly issues like this. Because part of it is if you are an, a member of an underrepresented group at a place of work that doesn't have anybody like you in upper levels of management and as higher level executives, in your mind, you're going to be thinking every day, I'm never going to accomplish that. That level of success is not for me. And that part is a mindset issue. Now, whether or not there exists real bias in your workplace, that's a very real thing. And I do not want to act like it's not. But real bias coupled with your poor mindset is absolutely a recipe for disaster, right? And the thing that we know we can fix is your mindset. We can absolutely right. address that. And then we can work on overcoming whatever real bias exists. And the way of fixing that, and one of the things that we've kind of been talking through is making coaching an employee benefit. Like, yes. you know, right? So that is life coaching. So talk to me about life coaching in general, because that's something that in general, I think the, it, it, it certainly picked up. There are a lot of life coaches or a lot of different forms of coaching today, but I'm not sure that the audience would have clarity. So I'd rather make sure that they have clarity from you as to what's the difference between life coaching and coaching. Sure. So when I was working as a lawyer, one of the things that we did was we worked with a bunch of different types of coaches. I worked with executive coaches. I worked with um, marketing coaches. I worked with, what is the other one? kind of blanking on it right now, but I worked with all these different coaches and they were brought to me. They were paid by my firm, mm -hmm. right? I did masterminds. I did boot camps, and all of them had a couple of things very much in common. They were absolutely designed to tell me to do something and then follow up and make sure that I did it. So most of the time it was write a business plan, right? So what relationships can you grow and develop to get business? What organizations can you be in to get business? What speaking events can you get? What writing opportunities can you take advantage of? Create a list of what you're going to do this year and the year after, and then I'm going to hold you accountable to doing all of it. And I worked with amazing coaches and we came up with amazing plans. And then I would not really do them. And it was not until I worked with a life coach that I understood that if you did not have the right mindset, then all the great planning in the world was not going to make a difference. And so when you look at your own mind and you realize that every single moment of every single day, you have some core thoughts, I'm not good enough, I'm not going to succeed at this, they're not going to say yes. If you have all of these subconscious thoughts directing you every single day, if this is what's at the wheel, then wow. 
It doesn't matter how good your plan is because you're never going to succeed at it. And rooting out all of that negative self-talk, rooting out all of those negative thoughts and dealing with those is what then made me significantly more successful as a lawyer. Like I used to think that I was not going to last at the firm. And the year that I left was the best year that I had in, and it was a pandemic, right? It was the best year that I'd had in a really long time. People were shocked when I said I was leaving because of what they saw as the transformation in me. And it was all from working with a life coach. It was that that let me believe that I could take on higher level roles. I was the affinity group chair for the Black Affinity Group for the last five years that I was there. I was doing a lot of speaking events, moderating a lot of panels on social justice issues and workplace culture and Black Lives Matter and being able to talk about that at work and having a ton of success doing it. And it was all because I was no longer worried about what anybody was going to think. I was no longer worried that people weren't going to like it. There were people who didn't like it. I got negative feedback, but I was finally- Your confidence was there. Yes. I was finally in integrity with myself. I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong and I knew that what I was doing was going to help people. And so I didn't mind that people weren't going to like it. And that all, I was freed up to do all of that through life coaching. And so that's what life coaching is. Life coaching is more about helping you see why you are holding yourself stuck. And yes, there are definitely forces outside of us that are influencing everything in our lives. But if we can deal with our internal stuff first, we are in such a better position to do everything else. And so the reason that I think that life coaching should be an employee benefit is because this is where my employment lawyer meets my life coach. I know that as an employment lawyer, you really don't want managers and supervisors coaching employees on really personal issues like medical diagnoses or issues in their personal relationships or things like that. Those people are generally not qualified to do that. And also, you don't want to open yourself up to exposure. They're also uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. They're not qualified. And as an employer, you don't want to open yourself up to legal exposure by talking to your employees about subjects that you should not be talking to them about. However, your employees are still dealing with all of those things. And so if there was some kind of a third-party intermediary who was, in my version of this, a life coach who employees could freely speak to. The employers are protected because they're not part of this conversation, but who could then really work on those issues, really work on getting unstuck. They become more productive. They become more loyal, easier to retain. And it's just a win for everybody. Yeah, their home life is better. Their, their professional life is better. Their confidence is there. So it's not exactly. just the outlet because having the space is one thing, but having a qualified coach to help them Build the confidence, exactly. which builds enthusiasm, which really, and then the enthusiasm in my personal experience is what generates the revenue, for lack of a better yes. term, the productivity. Oh, yeah, 100%. So that makes perfect sense. And I think we're in a unique spot in the world today where employers are left not knowing, right? So the, the, the idea right now of life coaching becoming an employee benefit is it's almost like the the opportune catalyst, but it's something that people need. It's yes. not even a catalyst. It's like right now, if without that, you're looking at the, the rate of attrition is really high and the issues people are dealing with are so significant. So if it gives the idea behind how I've always looked at it is I want to create that space in the organization. But the right. reality is that the part of liability that you mentioned makes it somewhat impossible 
in certain topics. So a hundred percent. And I also think that post pandemic, there is such a focus on mental wellness now that we just really didn't have before. I mean, it was a thing that people were talking about and they had therapy as part of their EAP offerings maybe, but where I think employers could be doing more is not everybody needs therapy. Therapy tends to be very trauma or past focused, but sometimes what people need is just to be very future or present focused and they need help getting out of their own way. People grow up with ideas that were put in their heads when they were in second grade by their parents, their teachers, their church, their whoever, right? That maybe aren't serving them in their adult right. life and they don't even realize they're there. And what a life coach can help you do is root all of that out. So working with a life coach for me was so much less about accountability per se and more about are these thoughts that you are literally letting drive your life continuing to serve you? Have they ever served you? I never ask myself questions like that. I ask myself questions like that all the time now. Because of how much that having a life coach and and being the role you're in now, how much changed the way you look at everything, right? Because I'm so much more aware of my thoughts and I can ask myself, and sometimes you have a negative thought and you decide you want to keep that. And that's amazing for you. But that's but self-awareness least, is the key. Right. At least it's self, it sees it's conscious. It's not unconscious. Yeah. So. No, I think to me, that's not only a great idea, a great option, but it compared to the cost of, I don't talk about this much in the podcast, but I'm in the employee benefits realm. Right? So I do health insurance and the CEO of a company that does all our consultants build health insurance programs and employee benefit programs. EAP is probably the one thing that 5% utilization is sort of a norm. So even if you just completely remove the EAP, that probably could give the space from a budget perspective for life coaching. And EAP, I've never heard anyone tell me that the EAP changed their life. And I can't tell you how many clients and lives we've touched with the EAP, but they've never, meaning we've implemented it, they pay for it, but right. we don't understand the value of it ourselves. And you know, I've never called the EAP program myself and that's the benefit we have and have always had. So I think that's, do you envision the life coaching being something that, is that a an offering that has to be developed or is that already something that is there? So I am not aware of life coaching on a large scale, especially like individual personalized life coaching on a large scale. I am not aware of that being offered to many employers. I don't know. When I worked as an employment lawyer, I had huge like corporate fortune 100, fortune 50 clients. None of them were doing that. They were sometimes trying to implement coaching, like just among the ranks of their supervisors and managers and things like that, which was a disaster because that's not what they're trained to do and they're not gifted at it. One of the things that I used to go in and do is teach supervisors and managers how to do performance evaluations because they were just being done so badly. And so I think that bringing in somebody who is qualified as a coach just to do that Right. And they don't have necessarily any skin in the game on whether or not this person becomes a better X, whatever their title is. Right. Right. They're just interested in helping this person become better than they were. A better version of themselves. Exactly. A better version of themselves who will, by the way, incidentally, be a better employee. Right. And it shows that you're investing in 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 your team and your people. There's a better way to show it than to have a life coach for them so that you're letting them know it's okay and that right. they should have an outlet. And especially and a lot of these people, until this was brought up, I 
I never thought about the concept of how much that would help because so many things are coaching around specific things, but life is mm-hmm. more broad. So how do you yes. get qualified as a life coach? Just so that just to ensure so, there are a number of different ways you can qualify as a life coach. There's also, in my opinion, I think it's a few different things. And if I were to create this product, there's a way that I would want to do it that I think would be the most effective. I think that one of the things people are missing out on because there's such a conversation around work-life balance is nonsense, right? Of there being balance in your work and your life. Like you have one life, okay? And work is absolutely a huge part of it. That's very important. But this idea that work and then life are somehow separate and can be balanced 50-50 makes no sense. Yeah, like you shut one off. Exactly. And turn on the other one. You go home and you immediately leave all that behind. And now you're here and you're present. I mean, that's what people endeavor to do, but that's not very real. Work is always with you the same way that when you are at work, life is always with you. And I heard someone telling me that um, I was having a conversation and they said that their manager had a little team huddle and was basically like a check-in, like, how's everybody doing? Are you feeling good about this, feeling good about that? And was trying to coach them up on work. And the person I was talking to said, I just wanted to say to him, all I'm trying to do is keep this part of my life out of this part of my life. And that to me was such a great illustration of what the problem is, right? This was somebody who I know was going through some things personally and was basically saying, I'm trying to keep everything that's happening in my personal life out of my work life. That's all I'm doing, right? I'm not trying to sprint or accomplish amazing things at work. I'm just trying to keep these things separate so that my work life is not impacted by my personal life. And that's why I think that just acknowledging the reality of the situation, that those things can't be separated is so important. And if those things can't be separated, then building a great culture right, be, yes. it means that you have to understand that your work life and your personal life are going to blend. Yes, because they do. Right, every day starts off. I, I begin every day, and my personal life impacts how I show up anywhere Absolutely. I go. Absolutely, right, so. exactly, and really understanding and embracing and allowing that. I think that's one part of it. And again, I'm not saying that we should start openly having team huddles where everybody just talks about their personal problems and all of that. I think that though, having some kind of third-party intermediary as a sounding board where you can confidentially say the things that you want to say, knowing that it's not going to get back to your supervisor, would absolutely create a better employment situation and improve the culture at large. Yeah, because it's on the person's mind no matter what. So whether exactly. it's of the team discussion, which you know I probably I, I wouldn't want to do either, it's more of it's got to be done for that person's health, for them to be able to achieve their optimal potential. In that day, that moment, or if it's a longer term thing, no matter what, it's an issue. There's issues and an issue clearing that needs to happen, but with a positive spin. So making sure you're not leaving it up to them, you're actually enabling them through a qualified coach that was going to be focused on turning this into the positive as fast as possible. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think that's a huge part of it. The other thing that and this is like really my kind of wish bucket list, like my cultural wish list Okay, is I think that the thing we just talked about, this idea of really making life coaching part of employee work cultures, I think that is something that is very doable and something that I'm very interested in doing. 
I think that is something that could happen very quickly. What I think is a bigger challenge and something else that I'm really interested in pursuing is working with leaders on being better leaders around the inclusivity and belonging piece of culture. Because one thing that I think is amazing that has happened lately is that you hear so many more people. I think that this is in part because of people like Brene Brown, but you hear so many more people, leaders, CEOs, founders, presidents, being willing to talk about showing vulnerability in the workplace, right? And that's something that they're willing to do and role model for their employees. And that's really important. Because if people can't be vulnerable at work, they'll all be afraid to make mistakes. That's right. By demonstrating that, yes, mistakes happen and we just work through them and there's a way to approach a mistake and deal with it. And it's not going to be a terminal thing most of the time. Like we're going to be able to figure it out. It should be a rocket fuel. Right. You've grown. So by role modeling that type of vulnerability, I think that leaders are doing something absolutely amazing and I think there's so much further that we need to go with this in that in order for you to create space for people to really be able to be vulnerable, you as a leader have to be able to sit and accept their truth and their vulnerability. Even if you feel like what they're saying attacks you or people like you, you know, that when women show up and say, you know, me too, rather than say, it's not true It's just, this is just opportunism. I saw a lot of the backlash being, well, I'm just not going to work with women anymore. Instead of reacting that way, what if you're a male leader? What if you try to really listen and be curious about what the person is saying, try to understand where they're coming from and look for where maybe you could be better, right? Look for where maybe their truth is actually just true instead of wanting to resist and deny. I think that a huge opportunity that leaders have is to be willing to sit in discomfort for the sake of letting somebody else be comfortable. And that's where I still see an opportunity because if I come to work and I'm upset about something that either you don't believe or you don't think is real because you've never experienced it, rather than shut me down, can you show up as curious and interested? And really make me feel like I belong by engaging me instead of shunning me and by looking me in the eye instead of looking away. That, to me, I think is the next challenge of leadership. That's something that I think a lot of executives have the opportunity to work on. There was so much power in the statement you just said about being able to allow someone to sit in their discomfort Well, no, what it was that you have to be willing to sit in discomfort so that someone else can be comfortable, right? The reason that I feel that way is because that was not an experience that I had very often, right? To me, leadership is servant leadership, like that core values we have. And to me, one one is curiosity. So to be able to test it every day is like, okay, did I, this interaction I just had, was I curious? which means removing the assumptions, right? And preconceived notions to truly just be there present in the moment and be curious. Yes. Irrelevant to what the message that you're hearing is, be curious. And then the servant, so we have a servant part. And this is for us, it's, it's always a matter of growing. And But we're saying, okay, it's everything we're doing with a servant's heart because we are here to serve. Like leadership is there to serve the team. Yes. The reality, I think, without the, the type of coaching that you're referencing, like whether it's life coaching, I remember when I first went into management leadership in general, having started my first business, I had no idea what I was doing. 
I had no idea what being a good leader meant. I read all these books, but but when it came to how do you actually you know, implement those and have real conversations, I had no clue. And if you probably talked to people who worked with me, at that time, I probably would have said worked for me, but now I don't believe anybody works for me. I think everybody works with me. They probably, I've done this. I've talked to people that worked with me in my first couple of years of being an entrepreneur, and they said I was miserable as a boss. And so I had to understand what was miserable. And now when I look back, I'm like, thank God I called and reached out and got feedback and got honest feedback because it required a significant change. Most people don't do that. Right. No, that's a big part of where I feel like my transformation happened fast, but it happened because I wanted feedback and I was willing to act on it to be a better version of myself. I mean, what tracks me to leadership coaching is that I think a lot of times people find themselves in leadership positions because they're really good at something, right? right? And usually it's being productive in some way. They're usually very good at creating value in a way that brings revenue to a situation, but nothing about that necessarily makes you a very good leader. That's right. And so really, and but the thing is that if you're somebody who's really good at, at selling the most widgets, if you're the best widget seller in the place, you're going to hold a certain amount of power because of how much value you bring to an organization. But the fact that you bring so much value to an organization doesn't mean that your personality or your core values are consistent with good leadership. And so that is what I'm saying. Like you, you are really good at something. You grow a business based on the thing you're really good at. And then you reach a point where you have enough people around you and you're like, wait, why doesn't this feel good? Why does this feel weird? And it's because you've never actually put in place the foundation for a good and healthy culture. And one of the things, like when I think about myself and the value I can bring to a situation, I think that as a black woman, I have sat through so many uncomfortable conversations, whether I was a first year associate or a CEO of a startup that was an eight-figure company. And the reason is that microaggressions and things like that happen to Black women from the very bottom to the tippy top. And so learning how to be uncomfortable and still maintain the leadership energy that you want to maintain is a skill set. It is not something you're necessarily born with. And it is not something that a lot of leaders have had to train themselves in. Well said. And is that what leadership coaching can bring? So I mean, sorry, things, is that what life coaching can bring or is that a different type? I of mean, job? I feel like life coaching is everything. So I would employ a lot of the same theories of life coaching in leadership coaching. I just think that leadership coaching is happening at a different level and it's meant to develop maybe a different set of skills than somebody who is maybe at a lower non-management level in a company. Those same people, if you just have a salesperson, let's say, they may need help breaking through their own blind spots and roadblocks to perform better and achieve more. That's one type of achievement. At a leadership executive level, you may be talking about things like this. How can I create more sincere and authentic belonging? How can I break through my own barriers to being empathetic to people so that I can show up the way that I want to show up instead of basically setting the tone in the room with whatever my comfort level is. That's what most executives do. So this has been, and I, everything you're talking about is are things that I personally could, would want, could want, and then would want for all of my team. 
right? Because the, the aspect of coaching, I mean, I, the first time I ever went into management and even went in from each role, there's never an effective preparation for that role, right? We have books, right? So I always like, look at, okay, yeah, I've read Radical Candor, right? I read all the books and, and I try to practice it. But in the moment, if I don't have an outlet of, for myself where I can have a clearing and I can go through, because no matter what, I'm not always showing up at 100% the best way I want right. to show up. Right? right. So it's like having that is not just for the idea of it absolutely helps on the inclusiveness, the retention, but it also in every way, that's how you get people to achieve their potential. Because I always believe that I can't make you happy at work if you're not happy at home. A hundred percent. And to your point about servant leadership, you know, how you feel on any given day as a leader isn't as important as the impact you're going to have on your team. And Correct. so one of the things that I've talked about is figuring out like what leadership energy you want to bring into a situation and then being self-aware and self-regulating enough that you always do that. And that again is a skill set. That is not something if you like crash your car on your way to work, you come to work, you're going to be flustered, you're going to be whatever, that is not your team's fault. How do you deal with that but make sure that you are in the right headspace? Or if you know that you're not take yourself out of the situation so that you're not actually dealing with people in that moment, in that space. People think that because they're the leader, then everyone who reports to him, just uh, reports to them, just has to take it, just has to put up with whatever mm -hmm. mood you happen to be in. That is not great leadership. That no, is how not. people grow to feel like they can't trust you. Yeah. And that's also the idea that by no means that's serving your team, because that's giving uh, preferential treatment to yourself. Exactly. It's giving everyone the impression that it's, I remember it might have been one of the stories in one of the, in, in Radical Candor where it was like this, the, I think the author was saying that she was trying to end the meeting early so she could be with her kids. And then one of the gentlemen on the call was like, we have kids too. And they were in a different time zone and it was a late call. Right. So it's like, that's the, when you're the leader, it's like the context that you have to make sure you're paying attention to if this is the culture you want is you're the, how are you serving your team? Because right. I, I view it as like the our relevance is only, and this is my view, it's not, but I think it's a lot of the audience's view too. And I think, Kenley, you're the way you just articulated each aspect of how you look at leadership and culture is something where I'm, I think you're going to have a lot of people wanting to reach out to you. I'm excited for this because this was a great conversation. This is definitely the most in-depth and profound we've gotten out of all the episodes we've had so far. So- I, as a part of the wrapping up to this, is how would you want the audience to get in touch with you if they, maybe they want you as a coach? I don't know if you're open to that or if they just want to talk to you. I can be easily found on LinkedIn. Okay. Erica with a K, R Royal, R O Y A L. And we'll drop that in the show notes as well. So LinkedIn would be the preferred route. Okay. Absolutely. This has been enlightening. I have been writing down, I usually don't write down as many notes, but I have a lot of things that I have to reflect on. So you know, this is not atypical for a conversation you and I have, but it's atypical for a conversation that I think most people have. So you really bring things to the forefront. Thank you. I'm sure we'll talk again. Oh, I know that we'll talk again very frequently, but I really appreciate you coming on here. I think this is this is something the audience will get a lot of value of, and I'm excited for seeing where things go. Thank you so much. It was totally fun. Thank you for listening to the Culture Champions podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
You'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you're enjoying our show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And if you have someone you'd like to hear on the show or a topic you'd like to see covered, please email pat.davisbryant at risktag.com.